The short game is listener-supported on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show and join us on our Discord, head to theshortgame.net or patreon.com slash theshortgame. Welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show about short video games, games that respect your time. I'm Reagan Kelly, and this week I am joined by two of my co-hosts and a guest. Shane Kelly. Laura Nash. And first time on the show, thank you so much for joining us, Zoltan. Thanks for having me. So uh, you and I have only met one time, but Shane knows you a lot better than I I do. So I'm going to let Shane properly introduce you, but thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, so Zoltan and I work together, but uh, I think one of the things that most made me want to bring Zoltan on this show is Zoltan is a uh, real expert on classic games, having tor- well, literally toyed- I don't know about expert, literally but- <laughs> taken them apart and put them back together. I, I think I think that yeah. qualifies as a level of expertise that I sur- sure don't have. Oh no! Um, and we haven't had um, we haven't had a whole lot of episodes that were explicitly about arcade games, which is probably your biggest area of expertise. But uh, I did know you were a big fan of Super Metroid, so I thought this would be a great chance for us to chat. Yeah, absolutely, guys. And uh, what what Shane's getting at, uh, if you don't know, is that uh, uh, I love to restore and rebuild classic arcade machines. So I have, uh, you know, 13 classic uh, arcade machines completely restored here, and so... And yeah, Super Metroid has been a love of mine forever. I've been a longtime listener of the show. So when Shane told me you guys were doing this, I, I basically begged to come on here to be able to talk about it. So <laughs> thanks again for having me. And we can really use the help because this was one that, for whatever reason, I mean, as, as Shane mentioned, we're talking about Super Metroid this week. This is a game that every time we talk about, you know, what makes a great short game, people uh, people often bring up Super Metroid. It's one of the people most... People being my husband. Yeah. People, <laughs> mm-hmm. people being all of our listeners. You know, Super Metroid is one of the most well-regarded and beloved games of all time. And depending on how you approach it, it is a pretty short game, particularly by the standards of 1994. Um, and, uh, and yet it's something that I had never actually completed um and we'll get to this in a second i haven't still i'm i'm just right at the end (laughs) as we are recording (laughs) so uh owning that right up front but uh uh, i'd never i I didn't have a super nintendo as a kid uh and even more than that like i know a lot of people didn't have a super nintendo and then were able to play the game along the way between 1994 and uh 2020 uh because of things like emulation but for me uh I didn't have access to a Super Nintendo, and more more than that, I didn't have access to even something that could emulate a Super Nintendo until easily the year 2000, or probably more like even later than that. Because you know, I was uh, I was a Sega kid. Shane and I both we had nothing but Genesis yep. stuff in the house, and then later we were we were still on we were on Max, and you know when the um, Super Nintendo emulation started becoming a thing. I would, and I was still in the age group where I could have spent the in, the uh, the time and, and effort to get into something like Super Metroid. I, did, I still didn't have access to it, and by the time I did have access to something that could play Super Metroid, it was sort of out of the popular conversation around video games, or at least it didn't feel like it was like as Im- like I, it, it, it felt a little like why would I go back and play that by something like two thousand and three, you know, um, whereas. I feel like now it's it's 
continued to be in the conversation of video games in a way that many games from 1994 aren't. Um, and it's influenced a huge genre of games that I still love and play a lot of. But Not only was it hugely influential, <laughs> but also the speedrunning community, I think, has really kept this game as one of the the kind of highlights of classic gaming for speedrunners because of so many ways that you can circumvent uh, and sequence break it. Yeah, it's certainly how it got on my radar. So I, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but my parents banned uh, video games when I was a child and teenager. Uh, jokes on you, parents. I now work <laughs> in video games. Um, but they... They banned it entirely, so I did have an emulator, but um, basically what I was pointed to was Mario games, Zelda games, um, you know, Donkey Kong games, not necessarily Metroid. So I didn't really get to know Metroids outside of the term Metroidvania until I started watching a ton of Games Done Quick and speedrunning. That's really what put it on my radar as a game that was still fun. I assumed because no one told me that it was fun to play that it was one of those older games that were influential and torturous. So yeah. I was very pleased when I saw people speedrunning it and heard people talk about it that it actually is pretty accessible for the time. I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me, uh, for games done quick, but I would say this has probably generated more donations than any other game they've ever done. They always mm. save it for last. They allow, you know, saving the animals or 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 killing the killing animals. the animals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. So I mean, yeah, this it it is definitely embraced by the speed running community. So it's amazing how uh, you can really play this game in so many different ways, and and, and we can get into that deeper later. But I, I think that uh, really you can choose what what way you want to approach this game when you really do start playing it. So Zoltan, I mean, I know you've played this game many times, but I don't know whether this is something that you picked up as a kid or whether you uh, like, whether you got into it later in life. Is this something you played through when you were, you know, of the 1994 video game set or what are we talking about for you? Yeah, no, absolutely. I got this game in, in 1994. We were a Nintendo household. Uh, so we had a super Nintendo already. And I don't remember exactly how uh, we acquired the game, but I want to say I got it probably about six to eight months after it came out. At, it was in the Blockbuster bin where you could buy like previously mm. played oh, games nice. at a slight discount. So <laughs> I, I got it there. And I, <laughs> yeah, and I think that was the first time I played it. Um, and I was hooked by it right away. I, I, you know, I've said before that uh, for me, Super Metroid is kind of like my Star Wars of video games. It's the mm. one that feels like like chicken soup, like home. Like I go back and I play this game twice a year just because, you know. So, and I, I think in that time, um, yeah, I've definitely approached the gameplay in, in many different ways. I've I've tried to do it as fast as I can. I've tried to hundred um, percent. I've even gotten to where I've just to keep it interesting. Again, I've started playing some of the hacks that are out there and available for it too. That's awesome. Yeah. And I love that that scene still exists. Things like those things like randomizers and other cool hacks on the game that give you different ways to play it, different ways to approach it uh, that keep it in the conversation and fresh and everything. And I think it's amazing that it kind of supports that. It's it's a it's an interestingly breakable game and one that you can play in a bunch of different ways. 
I will say that like I've tried playing this game before and I mean, here we are, like it's 2020, I'm 34 years old. Um, I have tried to play this game many times over the years and I've bounced off it numerous times. So like I own an SNES, I've played many games on it, but I, and I've booted up Super Metroid on it multiple times and gotten usually to about the same very early game spots, gotten stuck and moved on to other stuff numerous times. And I thought it might be worth kind of talking a little bit about why it's probably worth playing this game if you haven't, and also ways to approach this game to avoid doing what I did, because I took a little bit of a different approach this time, Mm -hmm. and I breezed past those spots where I've gotten stuck numerous times in the past and just sort of uh, had a much better time with it this time uh, than I've had in the past. So I, I thought we should start by talking a little bit about like, why do we why do we want to play Super Metroid this game from 1994 in 2020 and if you are approaching this game for the first time how do we do that in a way that you know keeps you sane so something i have kept in mind and i think it's really changed the way i view the game is i would seen the game like a gatekeeping milestone i needed to achieve to be legit or like it seemed like almost like Mm. a homework assignment in a way kind of like you need to be familiar with these properties you need to be familiar with these things like this is an important thing that you need to learn like almost like a a classroom assignment or something in a museum like well if you like movies you've got to watch citizen kane oh yeah it's like you gotta sit down and watch citizen kane Or you don't understand film and you're like, well, maybe. Except this Citizen Kane is 10 hours. Right. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But like at the same time, that's a really shitty way to watch a movie and that's a shitty way to play a video game. Yeah. Because you're you're seeing it like something that's in amber and that you're not allowed to touch and play with. And that like, and if you're not good or having fun with this game, there's something wrong with you and you have bad taste. I think I had to get past all that. And mm-hmm. I think I did before I started this game because I think I just was like, hey, I've heard people say they drop it. Like, I'm going to play with, um, you know, I-, I did have the couch experience where my husband sat there and was like, oh, yeah, this room's bullshit. Don't worry about it if you hate this room. Like, just move on. There's other versions like that on the Internet, too, that will tell you that. But I think I gave myself permission to just have fun playing the game. And if I got stuck, it wasn't that I was bad at gaming, so I just want to say up the top, like, if you haven't done this because it seemed like a Citizen Kane homework assignment, it was going to not be fun. This game is actually really fun to play. You just have to get over yourself. And like Citizen Kane, <laughs> if you do get over yourself, it's actually a really fun game slash movie. Yeah. Like, I love that movie, Citizen <laughs> Kane. I, but I can understand why somebody who's like, you know, I'm just into movies, man. And I've never seen Citizen Kane might find that. Uh, a kind of an unapproachable experience or seems like it's not going to be fun before you really give it a shot. Yeah, and if you're watching it, watching it, trying to like look for the history in it and look for the influences while you're playing it, that's going to not be as fun as like playing it and and being later like, oh, I see how that feels like guacamelee. Like that mm-hmm. was a much more fun way to play rather than like hunting and pecking for nuggets of information to make you sound smart. This was absolutely my first time engaging with this game in any serious way at all. Uh, But I have played a lot of games inspired by it. And one of the ways that I found just a ton of fun in this game was by what I'll usually do in a Metroidvania is just uh, wandering around and exploring and trying to discover stuff. But one of the wonderful things I got to discover was that so many of my favorite games, not just referenced this, but like blatantly referenced (laughs) 
explicitly <laughs> referenced Super Metroid in ways that I wasn't expecting. So, like, there's an area in Hollow Knight, which I've been playing this last kind of few months, and it's it, this int- introductory area, the first place you get to, it's called the Forgotten Crossroads in Hollow Knight, um, and which is... Uh, very equivalent to uh, Zebes or Zebes or Zebes, whatever Zebes. you pronounce it. <laughs> um, and it's not just that it's this early area that acts as a hub for you as you explore the kind of this bigger underground area. Um, it is of an explicit visual reference. Uh, in Zebes, there's that long room that, uh, is so fun and surprising. I, I guess anytime you find it for the first time where you're just falling, 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 and there's mm-hmm. tons of these little enemies that are moving back and forth. And there's lots of little platforms in kind of a helical pattern. Um, and that has been almost copied and pasted into uh hollow Knight, uh mm-hmm. in, in this forgotten crossroads area. And there, there's even, and I didn't even get that far into it before I found like these, this same pattern of like uh, imitation repeating again, where I, 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 I'm going to keep coming back to hollow Knight because I, I've been really enjoying it this year and it's taken me forever to get through. Cause I have like so little time to actually uh, get into it, but there's a beat in this game that is henceforth in every Metroidvania game where you've just gotten uh, a bunch of upgrades. You've gone kind of deep into the earth and you've come back up. And now um, you come back leaping off of a cliff and you come back down to the place where you started to the ship. Except now you've got tons of power ups, t- tons of upgrades. You've got your ice beam, uh, you've got your uh, various suit. Um, and the you're it's explicitly saying okay now go back and re-explore with these new tools and these new skills um and this game like nails that beat so well like the music changes the the whole vibe uh seems different because you know you've got it's little things like new music and now your suit is dark orange uh but you're like okay now i've got this and that is that is like that is a beat that i think every metroidvania afterwards has kind of copied in some way yeah, I mean, there is a whole reason that like the the Metroidvania genre as a thing it feels so consistent. You know, the, Super Metroid really originated a ton of this stuff, uh, just sort of from a design perspective. Um, I mean, obviously, like things like uh, Symphony of the Night added on to that, and and you know, you you don't see a lot of games that are just exactly like Super Metroid today. But you, so before we get too much into what Metroidvanias are like, let's just def- say what the term is. So right. Metroidvania, it's games like Super Metroid and like Castlevania, hence Metroidvania. But what that means is it's a game where you (laughs) keep going back and forth in the same area and you get more and more skills that unlock more areas. So you'll be revisiting maps you've been to, but you now have new skills that will unlock new portions, let you go to new areas. You can jump higher, you can, um, you know, open new portals, all kinds of different things. But we could spend this whole episode, I think, going into like the specifics of like what constitutes a Metroidvania. But I think the key thing for me is just that it's a, it's a platformer, a 2d platformer usually that is designed around, exploration uh Mm -hmm. and in in which there are uh upgrades of various sorts 
Yeah, and you'll, there's a reason to go back to places you've been before right. because you can go further in them. I think something subtle, too, that uh, a, a lot of Metroidvanias, at least the good ones, all have in common is not just the you know the backtracking and the, mm-hmm. the new areas, but they're all extremely environmental games. Like, they have these environmental feels to them. Like, mm-hmm. if you think about, like, the, the, when you play Hollow Knight, what that environment and the music feels like, or Ori in the Blind Forest, or Guacamelee, like... All of these games scream a very specific mood and environment. Um, Symphony of the Night does the same thing. You mm-hmm. know, they I got think, style. Uh, yeah, style, absolutely. Super Metroid sort of expresses that by uh, by being, I think, very, very uh, inspired by the science fiction movies of the uh, 80s and early 90s. Um, so I, this very much, fe- and, and movies in particular, like this, this is a game that like feels very much uh, inspired by films like Alien, and uh, and, and I mean that per- that in particular, but other other just sort of science fiction films of that era. Um, Is so, the enemy Ridley named after Ripley? You know, I don't know, but uh, I, I thought maybe Ridley Scott. Oh yeah, that also makes sense. Yeah, yeah. There, there's always been connections between the the Alien universe and and kind of the Metroid universe, especially even the first Metroid game feels just like. Alien, right. <laughs> you know, the, the music, <laughs> the intro, the way that it starts up, the logo, they're extremely similar for sure. Yeah. And then I think also because Star Wars was still so very much in the popular culture, like this doesn't necessarily draw on Star Wars for its its feel, but something about the setup of this being the third in the series and the, the intro of this of this game um, has a sort of a uh, like a Star Wars feel to me in that it's like, you know, it doesn't start with. You know, like every Mario game starts with, well, you're Mario. It's the same as the last Mario. Have at it. But this game specifically draw. you know, it says Metroid 3 on yeah, screen. Yeah, just and in media res. Bam. Yeah. And it, and it, 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 it gives you a, a full on voiced intro. You know, the, the galaxy is the last Metroid is in captivity. The galaxy <laughs> is at peace. And like we're all good now, and you know it's literally like <laughs> that showing shocked you me scenes. when it happened. <laughs> yeah, it's literally showing you scenes from Metroid One and Metroid Two to kind of say this is a continuation of that story. You know, this is this is essentially the the equivalent of that like crawl at the beginning of like Return of the Jedi or something, where it's like yes, everything that you remember from the last film happened. We are leading you into a sequel. You know, we're starting in media res and things may be a little different than they were at the last second of the last film. But like, here we are. Uh, Metroid starts by telling you, yes, if you played those old Metroid games, this is a continuation of those. And in a very film like way kind of leads you into uh, into the experience. And that was totally new for 1994. Like I uh, I've played a lot of games from this era over the years and nothing I've played has this level of like feeling like it's part of a larger series with a continuation of the plot between multiple entries. This feels like you're very... forgetting the 20 minute movie at the beginning of every Mario game, <laughs> <laughs> where they re- reestablish like where they reestablish Luigi no. and Mario's like troubled relationship and. The, mm-hmm. explain the source of their incredible jumping powers. Right. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That happens Definitely. every time. Yeah, it's and the you space know, boots. What's amazing is they have this great, at the beginning of the game, they have this, this big intro, right? That's very cinematic and sets up the story. And then think about this. After that intro, 
you don't talk to a single person the rest of the game. There is yeah. no mm-hmm. text. There is no uh, – you're not interacting with any – I mean you interact with the animals a little bit, but they don't talk to you. They they kind of obscurely show you that you can do what they're doing, like the wall jumping they try to teach you or mm-hmm. the, the little dinosaur guy in the cave that teaches you how to, how to jump. Uh, do the power jump or whatever it's called. Shine and spark, which the shine spark. That that's word. It. I had to learn that from the guide, but like, why is it called a shine spark? I don't know. You're shining when you do it. That's cool. Sure. But I mean, think about that, that there is no on-screen instruction. There's no other characters to talk to. And yet the game is thick with story and environment the entire way through. Yeah. And I think maybe that's why the game also doesn't feel as approachable to modern day pe- players, who, people who have never played this game before. Because you come into it and you're like, well, what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Like, there's no there's no words on the screen telling you, like, tutorial-wise, like, what you're going to press, what what you need to do next. There's no missions. You just have to uh, make your way in this environment and, you know, try to survive. The lack of signposting and guiding that the game gives you is something that kind of defines this whole genre of games. But this game really absolutely, you're right, does not uh, have any of this story that it's telling you from from the voice of the characters. And that was a big uh, thing that held me back on this game a lot. Uh, I, I am used to having this kind of a game really have a lot of, um, you know, environmental storytelling or um, characters, NPCs that'll tell you what to do. Um, or at the very least, like have, give me like a, a buddy NPC. Who's like a dog or something that like points me in the right direction, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Like, they could have easily had terminals in this game that you get into yeah. to, you know, get information about the planet or, yeah. or and later Metroid games would do that. And I think that's, right. you know, that, that's, that's something that, um, there's certainly benefits to it. Like we're going to talk in a minute about how we approach the game. And part of playing this game today is figuring out, you know, how to, how to decide what to do next. And, you know, you don't have the like infinite time of a child to go and bang your head against every single wall, bomb every floor, bomb, you know, uh, shoot every wall in order to just sort of figure your way uh, through it. And so if you don't have that kind of time or the sort of schoolyard uh, level of like discussing the game with friends and figuring it out together, like how do you approach this game? Um, but yeah. like the the it's, the story is told entirely environmentally, which I I really really liked about it, and it feels very modern in that way, despite having some things about it that feel a little bit like mm, you know this is a game from 1994, and I need to figure out how to sort of work around some of its uh, its limitations. Yeah, and it, it's not like Zelda where you know that the wall can be bombed because it has a specific texture on that wall, and you know bombs go here. Um, it's not that kind of of a game. I mean, this is a game that literally the first thing you get to do is a boss fight. <laughs> mm, true. Yeah. So it is it, part of this like cinematic jumping right in is that it's going to trust you to learn it when you need to. Um, for better or for worse. And I, I think sometimes that is laudable and perfect. And sometimes it is asking a lot of someone in a, you know, 2020. Speaking of that boss fight that opens the game, mm-hmm. did you know you can't lose that fight? Yeah. 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 Okay. And but I didn't at the time, though. Like, yeah, you time, don't know the first time you know play it, You right? can't lose that fight. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you think that you might die 
in that fight. And at the beginning, I thought, oh, how clever. They're going to put an unwinnable fight at the beginning of the game, and then you're defeated, and then you have to come back up from losing all your power. I thought that was going to be like a, like, and now you're defeated, and you have to, like, survive in this cave and like get yourself <laughs> back up to where you were at the beginning. Like I've played games where you come in with all of the powers and you lose them. And I thought that's what they were doing. So I, I kind mm-hmm. of liked that they put a, I didn't know if it was going to be a winnable fight or not when I played it. Yeah. And then they throw you right out of that fight into, you know, a timer counting down and everything's shifting left and right. Oh yeah. Timer's <laughs> going off and you're like, and I didn't at the time know I could run. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which like great showcase for the tech there, you know, the the rotation, uh, sprite rotation was something that the, the SNES could do that like nothing else on the market, even a lot of PCs could not do that kind of graphics at the time. So it was like extremely impressive. Oh, yeah. You want to do that up front, right in the intro section. Oh, and also, can we just say that your jump in this game is cr- even before you get powered up is crazy because you're in this like mecha suit. So you, you're jumping like twice as much as you would in any other game. Like you've had this you mm-hmm. feel like you're in a power suit. Oh, and every jump is turned into a like a quadruple forward flip. Oh yeah. <laughs> just imagine seeing a human being jumping like that. So I've just started this game. There's a timer going down. I'm jumping like way across the screen and flipping eight times. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to get out in time. It's a great way to start the game. Uh, it's it's very action movie. Yeah, it's really, really cool. And it's also in kind of an interesting like inversion, like from the previous games, which I've played a little bit. I've never beaten, but, um, you know, obviously they're in the culture. I've seen the endings of Super of Metroid uh, one, for example. And like those games end with Escape the Station. This game begins with Escape the Station. It's this sort of cool inversion of the of the existing formula. Um, And then once you escape the station, then we're going down to the planet. Uh, you have to kind of infer a lot of what the story is here, but like you are uh, clearly going to like go and is- uh, rescue the last Metroid from uh, Ridley and his space pirates. I only learned they were called space pirates from the manual. They really look like pirates, the peg legs, the hats. <laughs> I would have assumed like the I hooks. assumed they were like, uh, the like yeah, mantis men. <laughs> well, they kind of do have hooks, but... some of them. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, th- so our our story, uh, such as it is, is uh, exploring the extremely creepy planet of it's Zebes, right? Zebes is the planet. Right? I yeah. calling it Zebes. It's more Zebes. Fun. When I was a kid, I called it Zebes, but I I think okay. since then I've heard people call it Zebes. I don't know which one. It is. I don't know either. It's potato, potato. I thought Zebes was an area on the planet. No, no, no. It's the whole planet. I think you're probably okay. thinking of, uh, like, the first area is Crateria. Crate, Crateria. Crateria. The crater area. Yeah, the yeah. crater area. <laughs> Crateria is always what I called it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's right. <laughs> I think I, I saw, I thought it was like cafeteria the first time, so I called it cafeteria, <laughs> cafeteria. for a while. And then I was like, oh, no. I mean, that's, like, a, that's oh, cool. another thing about this game is that literally everything in this game has a name and most of those names are not in the game. Some of them are in the manual, but many of those aren't even in the manual, aren't even in some of the supplementary materials you might have gotten from places like Nintendo Power back in 1994. So like this game has, you know, lore that is there is an official story to all of this. But I think in many ways, this game is improved by not engaging with that stuff. Uh, I'm not saying that necessarily like the Super Metroid series or the Metroid series has a bad story story it has a 
it has, from what I can gather, a pretty okay story. But I don't really think that, like, deeply engaging in the lore is, like, part of the experience of this game. It's this, it's its own thing. This game has a story. And for me, at least, the story of Super Metroid is the story that was going on in my head while I was exploring the planet, which is basically, like, this place is lonely and scary. There are many different types of hostile aliens. There are many evocative, weird, mostly unexplained enemies and threats and weird scenery like abandoned spaceships. And that, like, that's all the story I really needed is I'm stranded on this planet and I'm trying to get back the tiny little squishy boy that Ridley took from the first scene. And that's all I need to know about this story. And, you know, learning later on. And the world wants on, to kill you. <laughs> yeah. And learning later on about all of the, like, details of the, of the you know, Metroid Historia or whatever does not add to this experience for me. I don't know if you guys feel otherwise about it. I don't, Zoltan, maybe you're, maybe you're deep into the Metroid lore and you feel differently about it. Yeah. No, I don't think so. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I did play this when it came out. And I, like you said, I was, there was, I was getting my information from magazines, right? Mm-hmm. Because, um, I mean, at this time, 94, 95, I wasn't like on the internet at home, like watching, <laughs> looking up what these guys were called. So I had my own names for some of these creatures and or what I saw about them in Nintendo Power or Game Pro. Um, and I, I remember uh, playing this game and not knowing where to go, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but it, this was back in a time where I didn't have 700 video games at my fingertips at all, all time. You know, I maybe had three super Nintendo games that I could play and this was one of them. So it's like, you know, the environment was so cool that I just put it in and I just kept hitting my head against the wall until I, <laughs> until I was able to find my way through it. I remember especially getting stuck when you get to the area where the background characters, these little animals, are trying to teach you how to do new movements. The, the shine spark jump, for instance. Mm-hmm. And just being stuck in there probably for a week, not understanding what I was supposed to do. You know, They, they don't tell <laughs> yeah. you what buttons to press. Like that you run until you blink and then, then you press down to charge and then you jump. I don't know if that's intuitive or not, but it sure wasn't for me. No, yeah, I, I, things like that and the wall jump in particular are, uh, you know, they're they are taught to you in ways that I think are very cool and interesting for the time. Uh, you know, showing rather than telling is uh, is a great game design tenet that I think lots of folks could learn from, but it's also it's also still really hard to execute. This game requires a pretty high level of uh, of precision with some of its inputs in order to execute some of these actually totally required uh, moves. Things like the wall jump is the wall jump does not work the way that you expect, or at least not the way that you expect if you're a modern game player who's played Mm -hmm. a lot of like uh, 2d platformers from today that have wall jumps in them. Most of the time you just jump against a wall, you hit jump again and you're doing a wall jump, but here, no, it's quite, it's quite uh, precise. You have to jump towards the wall. You have to be doing the spin jump, not the regular jump. And then you have to very quickly let go of your direction, hold the direction away from the wall, and then jump again. And if you're doing multiple wall jumps, like to climb up a a narrow passage, uh, you have to do that repeatedly. And it's very difficult to do. And I never really got good at it. I also also say that something I had to unlearn is when you get a new skill, it does not mean that you need to use that skill in that room. And it will not teach you mm-hmm. all of the variants of that skill immediately. For example, um, you uh, get a bomb and you do use the bomb right away, but then there's a boss that you do not kill using bombs. And I tried 
for a while, like to, to use bombs to kill the boss because I had been taught by how you play video games now is that you get a skill, you immediately use it to defeat the next thing. And this game, yeah, it, you're still going to need that skill and your skill, but it, like all the variants of like using a bomb to jump in the air, using a bomb to clear passages. Nope, those are not immediately put to use. You get the charge beam, you leave that charge beam room and you don't have to use the charge beam to leave the room, you just jump out of it. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, occasionally you see this where you use the skill right after you get the skill, but it is not necessarily as immediate as it is mm-hmm. now in modern game design. I had to re that is a thing I'm still when I when I was going through like the last rounds um in my last playthrough, I, I still was like, oh wait, I assumed like I'm trying to use the skill I just learned. It's Zelda logic that mm-hmm. does not apply to Metroid in this game. If we're comparing the game design around these, this kind of older use of this lock and key kind of style of design to what they're doing today, there's also some places in this game where that older design is, there's some stuff you just don't see anymore. Oh, yeah. That was their way of signposting. Like the fact that there's all these blocks that can only be broken with one of the power ups. And, and then, then if you hit them, to an icon it shows a little icon. Up. Exactly. Like, Which what's I was like, <laughs> Why is this not still being used? <laughs> they kind of use it in Guacamelee uh-huh. with colors, to be fair. Mm. Yeah, it's a very mm-hmm. strange little bit of design, although, like, it, it makes sense. This, this, Laura, I think I do want to give the game credit. Like, you're, you're talking about how there, it doesn't always use that sort of, like, you've just gotten an upgrade, and then it, it tutorializes using that new power by making you use it to escape that area. Yes, this doesn't mm-hmm. do that every time, but also this was among the first places that you saw that as a design. Like this Oh, is, and, and you this, still need it in the next five minutes right. it's just not in the same room so it, it's a the the place where they've put that limit of like you must use the skill four times in the next five it, it's not you must use the skill five times in the next 30 seconds yeah um it's the next 10 minutes but when when modern games do that it, it very much feels like a, a inspiration drawn on games specifically drawing from this like this is this is a, a, a the origin point for a lot of that style of game design. And in many ways it does like later games have kind of refined it, but like this game gets a lot of credit for, for originating a lot of that sort of design language of like, mm-hmm. um, you know, meaningful upgrades that provide multiple benefits, including yes. benefits that you directly need in order to like navigate out of wherever you got the upgrade, which is a yeah. pretty important uh, game design idea that, like, yes, Zelda did something kind of similar, but not exactly. Like, this is really where, like, I feel like that idea comes from. And to its credit, it will not let you leave the region mm. without fully exploring the powers yep. that are necessary. Uh, there are gates that are placed that seem like it was a combat technique, but you must use it to navigate as well. And then that's the, that is definitely an innovation here. So we're talking a lot about some of the specific game design stuff that stood out to us here. And I want to continue kind of kind of talking about that a little bit. But for folks who are taking who are trying Super Metroid for the first time now, like me, uh, you know, hey, that was me, too. Yes, me, too, (laughs) which is a bit of a weird thing to be doing in 2020. But, hey, we've all got a lot of time on our hands. Do we, though? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. Do we, though? So we, we've all got a little bit of time on our hands, hopefully, maybe, and we're all maybe sitting down and thinking, well, I'm, I've played all of my video games. Wouldn't that be nice? And uh, now I've got <laughs> now I've just come down to Super Metroid, right? Um, if you're doing that, 
And it's not 1994. You don't have the Nintendo 900 number to call when you get stuck. You don't have the Nintendo Power subscription. You don't have the older brother that has already played the game and can tell you how to get unstuck when you're stuck. Except for me. (laughs) Right. Like, how do you... How do you play this game today? Because I feel like, like a lot of games from this era, it was designed partly uh, with obscurity as part of its design. It was designed for people playing this. You know, you've got this cartridge. This cartridge is supposed to last you a while. So um, many of its mysteries are truly obscure uh, in ways that that probably you wouldn't see in a modern game. And that can mean that this can cause this can cause you to bounce off of this game. It definitely did for me at various points. But there's, you know, obviously we've got the internet now. How how are we all how are we all approaching this? And I thought I'd start by kind of explaining my approach here, which worked well for me. But I figured you guys probably uh, have other approaches. You know, this time around, um, I decided I knew I was going to need a guide. But I have tried playing this game by looking up guides on the web before. I have looked up uh, various different walkthroughs and found them a little too annoying to have to reference. And, you know, the, the way of referencing them was always like, oh, wait, I'm stuck. Okay, how do I Google for what I need? I don't know what anything's called. What do I mm-hmm. Google? Everybody's using terminology that is based on, you know, 20 years worth of Metroid lore that I haven't engaged in. I don't even know what to Google when I figure it out or, <laughs> yes, I have to try and watch That's it. This was my problem. Part. Right. Or, like, I try to watch a YouTube video or Things something. Things are dripping and- from the ceiling room uh, not helpful yeah yeah so like i i that i was not finding that useful at all um so what i decided to do that was actually very very um useful for me was i decided to go back to the sorts of resources that i would have had uh back in 1994 when this game originally came out um and so I uh, I downloaded a couple of things. Uh, I found these on the Internet Archive, and I'll try to put uh, put links in the show notes to to them. Um, I found a scan of a walkthrough that would have been in GamePro magazine, the July 1994 uh, issue of GamePro magazine that gave a walkthrough of the game. Uh, just and a checklist, a high level walkthrough. Actually, there, there's there's more than just the checklist, but that's the main oh, thing really? I ended up using. Hmm. Um, and then also, uh, there's a Nintendo official strategy guide that they also published contemporaneously with the game. That's full of beautiful illustrations and everything. Um, and I thought, you know, okay, if I were if I were playing this game in 1994 and I didn't have that older brother, this is the kind of stuff I would have had access to. Let me see if I can stick to this. And in some ways, that ended up being the perfect solution because, in particular, the GamePro magazine, um, it has. Reagan, as your older brother, I do have to comment for a moment that I'm sorry that I wasn't there for you when you needed me. You failed me, <laughs> you you monster. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, the, it worked really, really well for me in this context because, first of all, being a PDF, I can skim it, I can flip through it, I don't have to watch a 25-minute YouTube video to get to the one thing that I need. Um, and it's not using a bunch of terminology I don't know or where it does, it's it's all illustrated with pictures. That was helpful. But specifically, the thing that GamePro did that I found really, really useful was they had a uh, they had a checklist in it that wasn't full of yeah. spoilers. Uh, it didn't just say, okay, go here, then shoot this, then go there, then do this. It just had a list of things that you should do. So, for example, it starts with, uh, you know, find the morphing ball in Brinstar, find the missiles in Brinstar, find the bombs in Criteria. And I knew that I needed to do these things in this order. And I, I knew roughly like what region I was supposed to be exploring to look for them. And that approach, having a checklist 
and knowing what zone something was in without having like specific step-by-step guide meant that I get to got to keep a lot of the feeling of like exploration while not having to spend enormous amounts of time feeling lost or exploring zones that aren't even where I needed to be. Um, So I'm going to put some links to this stuff in the show notes. I I found this to be extremely helpful. Um, And then of course the game pro magazine uh, help stuff ended with, and come back to the, to the magazine next month for the, for the conclusion to our guide (laughs) to super Metroid. And I couldn't find that for a while. (laughs) So, so I got stuck on that, but anyway, it was really, really good stuff. And then when I needed a little extra help, the uh, the actual official Nintendo guide from 1994 has these beautiful uh, maps that are divided up into zones. And I ended up uh, taking those with an app where I could draw on a PDF and literally like mapping things out, drawing little lines and everything, which uh, was extremely helpful too. So that was my approach here. And that helped me get over a years long hump of get playing the first 15, 20, 30 minutes of Super Metroid and getting stuck and 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 being uh, upset and and closing it. So um I, I I can't recommend that enough as a as an approach. But there's obviously lots of different resources out there, lots of different ways to play this game. And I wondered if any of you guys had uh, had suggestions about how folks could approach Super Metroid, either either like you know, mental ideas about how to approach it or specific resources that you thought would be helpful for folks playing this in 2020. My approach to the game, I think, is what a lot of players today are going to do. I don't know if it, I would, uh, if I were doing it again, if I would follow the you know uh, bizarre nineteen ninety four print matter only uh, route that you took, Reagan. But uh, I just basically was hitting up YouTube. The fact of the matter is, there are probably thousands of people running Super Metroid um, out there on the internet, and uh, if you want to follow someone else's approach to the game, you can just sort of pull one of these up and uh, seek around in the video until you see, oh, well, here's the kind of spot that I am, uh, that I'm in. I, I also found a, there's been a lot of really excellent kind of video essay style videos made about the game that give you an idea of its structure and like what you can do when. I found one from the channel. I don't have you. I don't know if we've ever mentioned the channel Boss Keys on here before, mm. uh, but uh, they do a, a very unique thing for a lot of these more open style games. Uh, he's got this sort of uh, chart that he makes that shows, like, okay, well, once you have this item, like what areas of the game are opened up to you and, and like charts it out in a very interesting little visual way. Um, and kind of then talks through the game showing like, well, here's the, here's the actual structure of this game and what parts open up to you when. So that's kind of interesting and neat. You could probably play through the game with something like that. Yeah. I, um, I've seen those charts and they're a brilliant way to kind of map out a game like this. I, I honestly, I think if I'd had a big printout of one of those, I might've given that a try instead of the, uh, instead of the kind of, uh, like instead of the kind of creaky mm-hmm. old 1994, uh, stuff that I was following, which got kind of confusing when, for example, it, it didn't know the name for that one boss in Meridia and just called it war- worm boss in all of the text or like, you know, there's stuff about it that's sort of like of 1994 where it didn't, it didn't really necessarily know all the, all the best tricks that we know now, you know what I mean? So I would have, I would have loved to follow along on one of those cool charts that, that uh, boss keys creates. I, I think there's, I don't know what the perfect answer is, but there's enough answers out there that, 
probably searching around will will find you something. I personally, even following along with that and some some things I found on YouTube, I did hit a point right where uh, the game really opens up, right where you have, uh, I believe, gone down to, is it Norfair? And then you come back up uh, and you have the ice beam and the various suit. And the high jump at that point. I did not get, did I have the high jump? I think, yeah. Yeah, you okay, have to I get think, high jump to get freeze beam. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. So that was after the so so and at that point then you climb back up and that's that's that moment I was talking about earlier where you get back to the back to the start of the game and and start re-exploring with all these new tools. But the game opens up enormously at that point and the way I was approaching it, I was still at that point just kind of wandering around like saying, "Oh, like hey, I can do this now. Hey, I can do this now." Uh but mostly just finding like Oh, well, okay, now I get some more missiles or whatever. Um, and that's around the point where I started to waste a ton of time in this game. And when we when we play the games for the show, we're trying to be economical with our time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is where I sunk basically the remainder of my available time to play uh, into this game. So I say once you hit that point, that's where I would say you, you got to be prepared either with a really organized walkthrough like what you had Reagan or you're going to kind of wander and get lost in caves which is authentic uh but might not uh, be what you're looking to do. So I was just going to add a perspective, you know, somebody who's played this before. Um how sure. I would advise somebody to like approach this for the first time. I think um one of the things that I would say is to rely heavily on your map, right? So mm-hmm. And I think Metroid does a good job of generally giving you no more than like two directions, uh, maybe three tops that you could go at any given time. So, you know, you can find those little map stations and then it'll upload the known world uh, to your map. But if you look closely at that map, you'll notice that there's always like uh, what looks like going to be one exit or maybe two exit points from that area. So follow the path of least resistance to those areas. And I think that that's going to be super helpful, uh, getting you, keeping you from getting stuck. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other thing that would really help is maybe not even a walkthrough or look at things that you need to do in order. There are so many moves and combination of moves in this game that are not intuitive that I think just watching some kind of tutorial or reading some kind of, you know, something that tells you what are the moves that you can do with these different powers. So, I mean, things like think about when you go into a ball and you learn to do the bomb jump, like it never mm-hmm. teaches you to do things like no. that. So, you know, things like the bomb jump, the, the shine spark, there is, you know, even the charge beam, one of the weapons you get super early on, it, it, you can hold down the, and be charged. And when you're flipping in air, you can destroy enemies that way. And it's so powerful at the beginning of the game, but not something that would be intuitive necessarily, right? So I just think that watching a moves list and relying heavily on, on your maps and follow the path of least resistance. And then I think what happens, especially in the maybe about the halfway point to last third of the game is that it's going, the whole world is just going to open up to you. There's going to be not really going to be anywhere that you can't go at that point. And then they start giving you things like x-ray vision. So um, I don't know if you guys have gotten this far, but later on you get x-ray vision Mm -hmm. 
And that enables you to see the secrets or the breaks in the walls in every room. So then it gives you a reason to go back through the rest of the game and mm-hmm. x-ray you know, everything you can find. And then even later on after that, they give you, you know, the space jump and the screw attack to where you can essentially jump continuously. So now there's no heights that are stopping you anywhere. So, but yeah, the moves list and and, and the map, I think, uh, is definitely required before playing this game for the first time today. Yeah, I think the moves list in particular is a pretty good idea because there's definitely going to be places that, like, if you aren't familiar with what all the powers that you can get are, there's going to be times where you're going to get to, like, I don't know, an inaccessible place that you want to jump to. And you, you know, you might not know if you can get up there yet. And, you know, if you know a little bit about the moves, you might know, okay, this is probably something that I need the shine spark in order to get up there. Or this is probably something where I'm going to need the ice beam in order to freeze that enemy and jump on them as a platform. Oh, that's a great example. Yeah. Yeah. And like, if you don't know that that exists, uh, you might see that spot and spend a bunch of waste a bunch of time trying to figure out a way around it or up there that that, you know, you don't just don't have access to yet. Yeah, and I played this uh, with the equivalent of an older brother, which is um, my husband watched me play, and then occasionally would be like, oh, yeah, this room is bullshit. Don't worry if you get stuck here. Like, this is a this is a notorious room. Don't worry about it. Uh, the, he's like, this room is called the New Bridge. Oh, uh, um, the New and, Bridge. Yeah, and, and I'll say, like, don't... If you're looking in um, any article written around the time the Wii version of this came out, uh, don't read any of the commenters because they're all awful. They're like... Oh you can't play this game if you don't, like, if you need help. Um, It's dumb. Most people played this game with help in magazines at the time. Um, But I'll say, like, what really helped me was he didn't tell me how to beat stuff, but occasionally he would look up, like, a controller schema and be like, hey, just look at this diagram. (laughs) Like, you're getting stuck because you don't know what all that there's buttons that do things. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the new bridge, which was like, I mentioned that I've bounced off this game multiple times. And that is one of the things. I'll explain what that is. There's a room where you think you can't get through it. And you try a lot and a lot of, a lot of things. You have to run across um, a bunch of tiles that will fall through and you just keep falling through. And and you feel like you you have to have a skill that you haven't picked up in the area to get through it. But it's just that you've never been oh. told there's a dash button. Yes. I didn't know and that this was called the, the new bridge. Button, yeah, <laughs> I remember this room bridge. very well. Um, Nate got stuck here. <laughs> I've been stuck on that many times. And it was it ended uh, at least a couple of my early attempts to play this game. Because like I thought, like, oh, I know, based on just knowing a little bit about the game, I know there's some kind of a speed booster uh, item later in the game. I must just have to come back here later once I've got the yeah. speed booster item. But no, you, you know, if you, if you think that and you just give up there, you are just going to spend the rest of the game stuck in that area. There's no other way out. And apparently it, at the time and ever since this game has come out, it's, it's killed so many people's runs because they, they just don't know that there is a dash button. Yeah. And, and, and why would you? The dash <laughs> button is a great point because it, I think it leans back to something that we should talk about is reorganizing your controllers too, mm. where, oh, yeah. where, the buttons, where the buttons are going to be, be at. Because I think uh, the way that it's set up initially when you first start playing is probably for modern gamers, it, it doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost like they just haphazardly threw the controls on there without thinking about the way that you actually press buttons when you play. So I highly advise 
uh, changing your your controller setup. You played on an SNES controller, right? I've played it on a, a SNES controller. I've played it on you know a random Raspberry Pi controller, and I've played it on my Switch uh, this morning. So, because um, I know a yeah. lot of people that are going to play it now are probably going to play it on the Switch. Mm-hmm. So, but I definitely reorganized uh, my buttons. I liked. Uh, I set up the. The dash that we were just talking about, um, I mm-hmm. set that to the Y button, which if you go into the, the control settings at the beginning of the game before you play, there is it does say dash for that button mm-hmm. or boost or something like that. But sure. So I like to set that to Y and then I set uh, jump to B so I can almost like Super Mario it where I'm holding dash literally all the time. You know, so I'm running everywhere. It helps with your jumps. It helps, I don't know, just moves you along faster. And then I set A to uh, fire. And then um, I know on the switch, it's really annoying. Select is on the way over on the other side. The little negative button at the top is how you change your uh, yeah. missiles, which yeah. is really hard. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. So I switched that, my, my weapon select to X uh, because mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in the setup, X is, or one of the buttons is generally your, your weapon cancel. And you essentially don't need a weapon cancel. You can use X to select your weapon, and then um, you can press X to select back to your regular blaster. You just maybe have to press it two or three times. But Which ap- you have to do in the select button anyway. Yeah. So. yeah, that's actually a really good idea, and I don't know why I didn't think to do that this time around. Uh, you know, I, I was vaguely, like, I vaguely remembered that this thing's menu does give you that option. Um, but I kind of forgot about it this time because for whatever reason, it's not something where like there's there's not like a pause menu you can go into in order to change settings mm-hmm. like you probably would find in a modern game. Uh, no, instead, you have to quit. Yeah, you have to quit. You have to like go back to the home screen or, or not home screen, but like main main screen, main like title screen of the game in order to, to set that. Um, and given that I was playing this on a on a switch, I never really went back to the title screen because, you know, it, there's there's a, a suspend mode on the switch. I just left it suspended or use the uh, use the built in like uh, save feature so that I could switch to a different game and come back later where I left off. I never reset back to the to the uh, to the title screen, and so I never went to that menu and, and reconfigured it. I don't remember control remapping even being all that common on console games in the '90s. I just don't think it Not was super level. common at all yeah i, I remember no. like we were playing a lot of genesis games at the time and they would usually have an option for like okay is it a jumps b shoots or b jumps a shoots or what have you like that was usually an option um but it was usually like pick between these two control modes whereas this gives you an option to specifically choose what button each function goes to which is like really nice considering the you know the yeah era. good accessibility yeah um, so good call out there, Zoltan. I, I definitely will do that the next time around I play this because I cannot tell you how annoying it was hitting the little tiny minus sign on the left Joy-Con to switch weapons in the middle of a boss fight. It's I just can, I can only awful. imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did in one of the early ones where the um, like the swinging Venus flytrap is running around and it opens up and you shoot it. I just found a corner. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a little corner you can duck into a just duck in the corner and just yeah. I would only weapon change in that corner because it was like so slow. It, yeah, but it, it's totally doable. And you're right. Like I think probably mapping like weapon select to one of the face buttons and having weapon cancel beyond select is probably the right way to go. Um, otherwise, yeah. I got used to the controls. It was a little odd at first having like th- this game kind of uh, the default setup 
has you putting basically your uh, your thumb on X and A, which like every other SNES game and most modern games would have your position with your you know sort of default thumb resting position on like Y and B, if that makes sense. So it just feels weird. But once I got used to that, it, it I, I felt like its default setup for the like jumping and shooting made sense to me. But um, I'm definitely going to explore the different options for for weapon selecting because that was always bad. Same thing here. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So listeners of the show probably know, like, we're, we're not always in the business of going through beat by beat, moment by moment through a game. And, and this game has, you know, there's a lot of cool specific moments and stuff to talk about. Um, if you're interested in a beat by beat deep dive into the zones and mechanics of uh, Super Metroid, uh, I can point you to other podcasts. For example, uh, my favorite retro game podcast, Watch Out for Fireballs, did episode 100 on this, and they did a really, really great job of kind of going into great depth about each zone in order, talking about every upgrade, every moment. Um, And uh, I enjoyed listening to that. But uh, I thought maybe we could take a quick second talk about any specific moments beats maybe even just upgrades that really stand out to any of you guys as something that you enjoyed using or or thought was interesting or anything like that i can kind of start and i wanted to talk a little bit about my favorite boss fight in this game uh the uh the, the fight with crocomire uh did i okay so i know crocomire is about sort of midpoint here and the the boss fights are kind of tough i don't know if you guys i know zoltan's fought crocomire probably dozens of times but i don't know if you guys <laughs> describe what crocomire means because right. i don't know the names yeah, me of and him have history. yeah crocomire is red and he's got <laughs> multiple <laughs> eyes and he's kind of like a big squat dinosaur and he's in yeah. he's in norfair so he's pretty far into the game he's kind of deep in the ground and uh crocomire is um so you know you're going to have to fight him because like you guys probably saw in the beginning of the game you can you can find that giant golden statue of all of the bosses and you kind of know okay each of these is something I'm going to have to fight and when you see Crocomire you know immediately you're like okay this is one of those guys that I know I'm going to have to fight um but I didn't initially attack him and he didn't attack me and that was a really wild moment cuz like okay the music starts spinning up but you just I'm just standing there and so is he <laughs> just sort of like a little standoff. Right. And, uh, I mean, after a minute, I was like, Oh, I guess I'm supposed to start the fight myself. I was like looking around. I was like, do I, can I get around this guy? Can I jump over him? Nope. Is there another (laughs) way out of this room? Nope. He just, he just stands there. And that, I thought that was kind of a cool moment. And then once I finally did start the fight, first of all, it's uh, the boss fights in this game are not my favorite part about uh, super Metroid. And I think, you know, in terms of design, super Metroid's boss fights are very, a lot of them are very much just sort of like, uh, uh, you know, shoot the, shoot the guy in the mouth or in the eye, use your big bombs or something. There's not a lot of very creative design, but where they really, really nail it is in sort of the, the aesthetic and the sort of mystique of the bosses. And Krokemeyer is a really cool, gigantic, scary-looking sprite. Very, very uh, dramatic for the SNES. And uh, once you... Uh, the uh, the fight with Krokemeyer is mostly about sort of pushing him off of a platform. Because you're in a room that has a, a, a spike wall behind you. And he'll try to push you towards the spike wall to kill you. And your job is to shoot him in the mouth, which makes him stumble backwards into a giant vat of acid. And then he's constantly moving his little arm up and yeah. down, blocking all your shots. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It's kind of hard to do. Um, I definitely didn't get it the first time. 
Um, but the second time through, I did finally, like once I figured out the main thing was that I figured out I, I didn't have to use the the missiles. I could use the charge beam for it because I kept running out of missiles. Um, but you can use the charge beam for it and it's very effective. And eventually I knocked him into the acid and it is the most ghastly thing I've ever seen on a Super Nintendo game. So the belts, <laughs> they spent a lot of their like, I don't know, uh, sprite budget giving you a, a really dramatic. It's some Raiders of the Lost art oh, shit. I mean, and he makes this scream that's like like i didn't know the snes could make screams like that and i felt really bad because just like he was not he was just hanging out man he he was just hanging out in his big cool room next to his cool pit of acid and his cool spike wall and he wasn't hurting anybody and then i come down he literally didn't attack you until you attacked him and then i push him into a vat of acid that just destroys him and then there's that incredible moment where you've you've finished up in the room, you've you've melted poor Crocomire, and you're looking for the way out. Poor Crocomire, and then and you think there's no way out, and then through the wall, Crocomire's giant skeleton. Apparently, he's still alive, even though literally all of his flesh has melted away. And he busts through the wall <laughs> like he's gonna attack you. And I jumped, man, I jumped, <laughs> and uh, and then he just straight up dies. Like you think he's gonna, you, think, you know, I was on like one pixel of health or whatever, and. I thought for sure, okay, this is it. Uh, but no, he just busts into like, and I was like, I wasn't sure if he was like busting in to, uh, to try and, you know, get revenge or if he was like t- using his last dying breath to be like, oh no, that poor person that had this terrible misunderstanding with me is going to be trapped in my, in my lair. Let me use my last dying breath to let them out. Uh, it was, I felt bad for killing Crocomire, but it was also probably my favorite moment in the game. So like, I, I, I don't know. Anybody have any other like specific stuff you really, uh, you really liked? Well, I've thought about it a bunch of times. Um, and I, I think the, the parts that I love doing over and over again is I love how the, the pace of the game where you, it takes you to start like way deep down in the ground and you're in the ground and in the ground for you know, if it's your first playthrough, a long time, and mm-hmm. then you finally come up to the to the wrecked ship. Oh, the wrecked! You know, ship. and 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 you're outside in this uh, outside environment with the water and the whole wrecked ship where you go in at first, and it's just like ghosts. It's kind of a ghost ship thing going on, and um, then you finally get to turn it, turn everything back on. You get the power running. You get rid of the ghosts. I don't know. Just that that segment of the game was super memorable for me, and something that I I've Every time I play through that part of the game, I, I just love mm. it. Yeah, my favorite thing in the wrecked ship is coming, you know, you fought your way through the area just outside the wrecked ship, and it's a bit of a hard fight. Um, and then you get inside, and the first thing you find is a save point, and that's very exciting. And then you realize that the save point is deactivated because there's no power in the wrecked ship. And that's the first time you've seen that. Yeah. That's such a That's such a cool, like... Like, I didn't even know the game was going to pull those kinds of tricks on me. I didn't know that, like, okay, like, if there's no power, then the save point doesn't work. That was cool. And then, of course, you find your way through and turn on the ship, and and that activates the save point. But, like, that was just such a cool, like, playing with the elements of the game that you kind of thought were these, like, immutable things, right? Like, you think saving is just a thing you do in games, right? It doesn't require that the generator be on, but it does. And that, that was just super cool. That's awesome. And then, of course, I think at the end, too, everybody, you know, the I, I'm, 
is there spoilers for a game like this? Because nah, it is, you know, nah, how, how old yeah. is this game? But you know, the mother it's, brain. It's fight. not the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, You're not the, playing it for the plot. <laughs> yeah, the mother brain fight at the end uh, is. The, oh, you mean you fight mother moment. brain at the end? <laughs> <laughs> that's like a Mario complaining that you fight Bowser. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but yeah. it has that terrific moment where you think, oh, uh, you know, mother brain, I've, I've one and then it's another form of mother brain and then you get you know mother brain shoots you and you're about to die and the metroid comes in and saves your life and then you all of a sudden you're ultra powerful you have this new weapon that you've never used before for to finish off mother brain with but that whole sequence that last uh boss battle is a great bit of storytelling and just awesome every time you play that's awesome Mine's a tiny one, but I just wanted to like shout out um, because I have a lot of the similar feelings and you guys do. But I I think um, I was out of control, excited for the tiny bit of this. Like the fact that the bomb jump that you can bomb, like bombs will help you jump, made me so excited for the rest of what this game had to offer. It's pretty early. And the fact that you're in the morph ball and you drop a bomb and it helps you move. I have played so many games where bombs hurt you, that you set your own bomb off and it kills you, that bombs are only for getting through doors. And I have yet to see any other game rip off that mechanic. And I want more games to rip off bombs helping you propel yourself forward or like safe bombs where you can't get exploded by your own bombs. Just like more people have bombs that do other things please like it made me mm-hmm. mad that this was in a game in 1994 and no one has ripped it off why is no one ripped off the bomb jump <laughs> well i think i think the reason for that is is because you can essentially break super metroid if you get good oh, enough sure. at bomb yeah, jumping, totally <laughs> <break it with laughs> bomb jumping. <laughs> sure i've seen the speed runs and bomb jumps are huge in speed runs but or if you have a turbo controller this is something i realized when i was trying this on the actual snes is that like if you put your controller on turbo and you just hold down the button uh then you can essentially fly with those bomb jumps to any height and that's a that's an amazing thing to discover, but it, and it's very broken, but it's also like really cool. It's one of the many ways that this game it is cool. lets you like exploit its mechanics. I've seen speedrunners use bomb jumps a lot, but like still, it's it's just such a shame that this is an innovation no one has that I've played. No one has ripped off yet. Come on, guys! I was expecting everything in this game to have been ripped off, and that was the first thing I encountered that has had no equivalent in any game I've played. Yeah, that's weird now that you mention it. Like, tons of games have uh, have bombs that function similarly to this, except that they almost universally, the bombs hurt you. That is something that the I bombs don't... bombs hurt you. I don't usually... Like, like, I was thinking about, safe like... Safe bombs. Oh, yeah, like, I've played a ton of games that feature bombs incredibly heavily, but now that you're mentioning it, I can't think of a lot where you can mm-hmm. just straight up sit on your own bomb and use it to, to move. Why can't you sit on your own bomb and use it to, like... If you're a... You know, you should... It is uh, the future in this game. You have a lot of technology. Why would you have bombs that hurt you? Yeah, that's a really good question. <laughs> game developers, more bomb-proof heroines. Bomb-proof right. heroines, please. <laughs> awesome. Um, lots of our listeners have written in with their thoughts about uh, Super Metroid as well. We had a good conversation about it on our Discord. Uh, a couple of folks uh, sent us some nice little uh, paragraphs with some thoughts, and I thought I'd read a couple of those here. Uh, Ted Listener Ted wrote to us via contact at the the shortgame.net. Super Metroid is an important game, quotation marks there, uh, but it's also a rich, fun, and unique experience. And along with Symphony of the Night, it solidified a genre. A couple of thoughts on why the game is great. 
atmosphere and exploration. Very few games on the SNES have such a strong sense of place. Super agree. Yep. Uh, the sounds, music, largely ambient and wildly different from most of the soundtracks in the time. Uh, and visuals all work in unison to set the tone. Uh, from the first Metroid squark, when you first fire up the cartridge, to the Blade Runner-esque ending theme, the game uses all of the tools available on the SNES to make you feel the planet Environmental storytelling. Super Metroid is rich with detailed environments. The dead bounty hunter outside of Craid's lair. Ooh, super. I forgot to mention that. Man, what a moment there when you come upon that corpse that is wearing a very similar but slightly different uh, power suit to yours, and it's covered in those little bugs that scurry away when you come close to it. Mm-hmm. That is that is a great moment mm-hmm. of like, oh. I'm I'm about to walk into trouble now, and that's pretty early in the game, and it never repeats that. You know, that's that that was they took the the, the however many k on that valuable cartridge space to include that one off yeah. sprite just to give you that one creepy moment. I love it. Um, uh, he says, uh, my younger self created entire worlds with these small details. The standout set piece happens near the end of the game. A beautiful scene involving Samus, Mother Brain, and the last Metroid occurs without any words or dialogues. Uh, only the visuals, music, and sound effects and player interaction tell the story. Um, and he goes on with a bunch of other uh, great notes here. But I'll mention that uh, that Ted also gave a plug to his own podcast, which is called Do You Want to Continue? Uh, and so thank you, Ted. And hopefully folks can check out that podcast, too, if you want some of Ted's thoughts about Super Metroid, perhaps, or other games. Uh, and uh, also, we got some great feedback from Dave Giza in the D- Discord. Uh, he says, I was... Definitely too young to play it when it came out and only played it all the way through for the first time within the last five years. So obviously he's getting a little more similar experience to what we did. Uh, I think, and this is not, this is not just nostalgia as I wasn't able to experience it firsthand contemporaneously, that there is an elegance to the simplicity of this game that stems from when it was made. It doesn't strain under expectations of its franchise, nor does it need to justify an exorbitant budget or hype cycle. Rather, it just simply is. And it is so, for lack of a better term, eminently playable in a way that I find only other, only 2D hyper-polished games are. There is certainly a learning curve to maneuvering the world, but there is no period of learning to actually control Samus. You just play the game. And what a game. Beautiful sprites and backgrounds and also expressive uh, for the limitations of the SNES hardware and design. And I can't agree enough. It's extremely, uh, like, extremely polished. I think you could easily take a game like Super Metroid and put this out today as a, I don't know, modern indie game, and there's really nothing missing. Like, there's there's few games that have this level of polish. Uh, and, you know, it just, it just works on a level that's really surprising for a game of this sort of vintage. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why we were so... Um we kept talking about the guides and the the expectations of not holding your hand because it looks so good that you think it could be a modern game and it's very easy to forget you're playing a game that's this old. Yeah, and that that is sometimes a source of dissonance, right? Because like I, I would I'd be I'm sitting there playing this game on my Switch and I I'm enjoying it and then I run into like like some slight something that probably would have been uh, forward thinking for 1994, but maybe little elements that feel a little bit antique and they feel a little bit more antique given that like I've so immersed myself in the game that I've forgotten that I'm playing something from 1994 that happened to me several times throughout this game. 
and the music is just so killer. Oh, God, I mean, yes. Ted, oh, yeah. Ted said it in his review, and, I, and, when, and when you read that, I was thinking to myself, we can't get out of talking about Super Metroid without at least mentioning the soundtrack. Yeah. It is still, to this day, I think, one of the best video game soundtracks ever. All of the... Uh, it's got this... How they pushed the, the Super Nintendo to make this music. It's got this symphonic, like, almost choir-like voices that sing uh, these very environmental uh, alien planets. I, I mean, it's, it's what makes the environments feel the way that they do. It's got this creepy, just great vibe to it. Uh, I, can't, I can't recommend the music on this game enough. Oh, and it's partnered with such a beautiful uh, not, uh, beautiful is not the right word but the sound design is so accurate for the environment like all the the enemies have very unique sounds like it, it's not like um it's overwhelming the the feeling that you're in a place it, it's great supportive background music for so much good sound design on top of it I, it's kind of shocking that you, you feel like it could have been easily been very repetitive could have been easily um just you know not every enemy could have had a uh, unique noise, for example. Yeah, yeah. But- play it with headphones on if you can. It's killer. Yeah, it's really killer. And I'll, I'll specifically mention a couple of cool things about the soundtrack. Like, obviously, it's it's cool on two levels. Like, it's cool from its its um, uh, composition. The composition of these of these tracks is is phenomenal. Uh, and also from a technical standpoint, given the, the restrictions of the yeah. time, like it just sounds really like really, really good considering, <laughs> but it's also really, really well composed. And um, something that I've uh, listened to several times over the years, and I recommend people go check out if you know the soundtrack to super Metroid and you like it, there's a, there was a project a few years ago um, by somebody. Uh, I think their name was, I think they're, I think they're called luminist and it's called super Metroid resynthesized. And they took the entire soundtrack of super Metroid and played it on analog synths. Uh, so if you're, you know, if you're familiar with like the synths from the uh, the 70s and 80s, the kind of massive things that were a, like a wall of patch cables for generating tones and everything, that kind of that tech. sounds awesome. And it it has this, and it's a sort of sound, uh, the sort of hardware that that would have been used to create the soundtracks for a lot of the uh, the science fiction films that Super Metroid was drawing on. So it's kind of bringing the soundtrack from the hardware of the SNES and making it sound more like what it probably was inspired by. Uh, And it sounds amazing. Check that out. If you search for uh, Super Metroid Resynthesized, you'll find those tracks, and they are awesome. And it really sort of highlights how good the composition is on these, apart from just being great video game soundtracks. Like, it would fit as 
a killer film soundtrack or you know just awesome music so 100 agree love the soundtrack to super metroid mm-hmm. i will say uh the guy that was the main composer for this mm-hmm. uh kenji yamamoto you will also find his name on the credits for legend of zelda breath of the wild oh so ah. yeah yeah, I didn't a, know that. That's cool. That's one yeah, of the amazing great. things about Nintendo is like people who work there, they just work there for life. And like you'll see people in the in the credits on like a modern Nintendo game that's like, well, this person has clearly this person has been there since the Famicom or something, and they've they've got this incredible like institutional knowledge. Uh, you know, people who've just worked on these games in one form or another for decades. It's amazing. So give us a new Metroid already. I know, <laughs> right? my God. Okay, and like like this. So I mean, we when we decided we were going to do a Metroid game, there was quite a bit of talk about on our Discord about which one we should do. And I think Super Metroid is probably uh, probably the right answer in some ways. Although I've played more of some of the other Metroid games, so like the GBA Metroid games, both uh, Fusion and um, uh, was it First Mission? I forget the title. Zero Mission. Um, are both great and have a little bit more sort of modern design. So, you know, different uh, different ways of handling saving games, a little more hinting about like where to go and what to do next. Uh, and in some ways that can be seen as good. You know, you'll, you'll definitely feel more forward momentum in those games, uh, but in some ways it doesn't. So like, you know, you lose a little bit by not having this sort of feeling of, of uh, you know, exploring a stark, empty world with only you know only yourself to talk to uh you lose a little bit of that when you have a computer telling you where to go next um so it loses a little bit of the uh the atmosphere while gaining a little bit of sort of forward momentum at times um but like you don't they didn't make any 2d metroid games for years until they finally came out with this this recent one for the 3ds which i haven't played yet the remake of metroid 2 it's terrific okay that's good to hear it's terrific i i loved it i mean it's not as good to me as Super Metroid, but it, it's the the one that feels closest to that for me. I, I really liked it. I know that like people love Metroid Prime uh, and the 3D Metroids, but like I keep hoping that like like if, if if Nintendo wanted to, they could crank out a new 2D Metroid every two or three years. And I don't know why they're not doing that. Like <laughs> you know, people would buy the hmm. hell out of them. Um, and I guarantee you that there are. You know, there are legions of game designers inside and outside Nintendo that would give their left arm to work on a new 2D Nintendo game. Like, Nintendo, get on it. You should be making one of these every two or three years. People would buy them. Like, come on. Maybe they don't think they can charge 60 bucks for a 2D Game. Yeah, they probably don't, but they probably also don't need to, you know? Like, well, they don't need well, to. Plenty of but Nintendo there, doesn't though. charge less than 60 bucks for anything. That's true. They, they're still charging 60 bucks for one, two switch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Good, yeah, exactly. Right that, yeah, exactly. Uh, on sale for, for 55. Well, uh, that's just my guess. If I had to guess, it's that they don't think they can sell it for $60 and they don't want to. Do well, it, I, which is a shame. But, you know, look at uh, look at something like uh, Cadence of Hyrule. I'm really hoping that like Metroid gets a Cadence of Hyrule treatment, where like an indie developer from outside Nintendo gets access to the property, gets to try something new. That'd be amazing. Release that would be perfect. And a, again, like look, Cadence came out for twenty bucks, twenty five exactly. bucks. Yeah, yeah. So like, I would Do love it. to see more swings at this. And like, the market is there. You just need to look up the tag Metroidvania on uh, on you know Steam, and you'll see that like like half of the games on there are tagged that. Like, this is a this is a genre that like has an audience that is just like 
always desperate for new stuff. Like, it's amazing to me that Nintendo continues to sort of leave that on the table. Yeah, and, you know, it, even the fan community has made some really great mm-hmm. hacks for, for Super Metroid. I mean, you can play versions of this game. Same thing exists, like, for Zelda, where they have randomizers where items have been moved around to give the game, you know, some a new flair. And then there's also people have taken the Super Metroid world and built entirely new sections to it and added enemies. So these hacks are out there. If you know how to use an emulator, just Google it. You, you can find them out there, but they're, they're really great. Um, That's really interesting. Yeah. Adds um, a whole, a whole new way to play, um, you know, a super beloved game like super Metroid, especially if you're somebody like me and who's played it already, you know, over a hundred times, it's nice to see something familiar, but new at the same time. Yeah. And there's, there's other like fan games out there. I think the one that, that, uh, they got the most press was AM 2 R another Metroid two remake, which is a, yeah, it's great too. Yeah. yeah remake of also. Metroid two, the game boy one, but expanded and done in a sort of a super Metroid style. That's very, very cool. Nintendo made them take it down, but if you Google it, you'll find a copy. Um, it's totally accessible. If you, if you want to play it, I think it's, I think it's PC only, but there's, there's, some I think there's ports to things like Raspberry Pi and stuff too, but anyway, it's it's playable in a lot of places. I'm sure. Um, and uh, obviously, like tons and tons and tons of games draw from this. So, like if this is your jam, then you, you'll 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 never lack for one of these to play. I play probably at least one Metroidvania esque game per year, and it's sometimes the real challenge is just picking which of them is going to be the one that I uh, that I pick up at any given time because. All the time, there's new ones coming out that I'm like, hmm, that one looks cool. I'd like to play that, and I just don't have the time. Uh, so, you know, hey, if you've got listeners, if you've got a favorite Metroidvania game, maybe specifically inspired by Super Metroid, something you think in particular uh, makes it Super Metroid-esque, uh, let us know, because we're always looking for these sorts of games, particularly if, like Super Metroid, they can be completed in under 10 hours. Uh, otherwise, it's not quite in the territory for the show. But this one, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say um, that... One of the things that often holds me back on these games is that, especially due to their you know high degree of backtracking and often very open world, like they they often take me so long to complete, even the ones that are supposedly short. So I am kind of hoping that our listeners have in their back pocket maybe like a like a four or five hour yeah. Metroidvania, <laughs> if such a thing is even possible. Hey, you remember, you remember Gato Robato we played last year? That one, that one was like two, three oh. hours and it was like, had the full Metroid More of that, please. So, you know, they're out there. You even had a power suit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Zoltan, have you played Gato Robato? No, I, I, I know what it is though. Uh, I definitely should check it out. Oh, um, we loved it. It was great. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of games like this out there. Let us know if you have uh, particular recommendations. So Zoltan, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Uh, it, it definitely helps to have a, a real hardcore expert uh, or at least diehard fan on the show uh, among the three noobs uh, who barely got past noob bridge. So thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. I had a great time uh, doing this. And, you know, if ever uh, you want me back again, I'd love to come back. I love it. Uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll find some short games that we both enjoy and, and bring you back anytime. Terrific. Thanks again, guys. 
And uh, you can find our show on the web at www.theshortgame.net, uh, where you'll find a contact form. That's a great way to get in touch with us. You'll also find a link there to our Patreon. The Short Game is supported by our listeners on Patreon. You can also go to patreon.com slash the short game. And all of our patrons at even a dollar a month uh, get immediate access to our Discord, which is where we talk about the games we're covering for the show. Uh, we plan episodes there. We chit chat about things that we're playing that are or are not short. So join us there. Uh, we'd love to have you. Uh, specific thanks to a few of our listeners this week. Just a shout out to listeners and, and Patreon supporters, uh, Jeremy Greer. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks, Joe Boria. Uh, thank you, John, John Brainlove. And thanks to uh, Laura Bruyere. Uh, so thank you all to all of those listeners and uh, to anyone else who's supporting us on Patreon. Uh, you can find our show on Twitter at underscore short game. And you can find me personally on Twitter at Reagan K. That's R-A-Y-G-A-N-K. Laura, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Laura J. Nash. And Shane, where can people find you? Also Twitter at 8BitShane. And Zoltan, I don't know if you have a, uh, a place you'd like people to find you or whether you'd prefer they stay away, but do you have anywhere you'd <laughs> I like don't people have to anything, find you? I don't have anything to plug here. Uh, just uh, thanks for having me again. I had a blast. Yeah, thank you, Zoltan. And thank you to all of our listeners for listening to The Short Game.